0: Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPs board View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young
1: and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anyone's
0: eyes. Each week, we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew?
1: Today, we're talking about fundamentals about the vitreous humor. Uh, always fun to talk about evil humors, and in particular, we were just talking off-fire about how nobody likes the vitreous.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's nothing funny about the vitreous humor, Andrew. Like, no, you know, wait. I've only been a Rottenfellow Fellow for like a year, Dude. but if I've learned anything from this year, it's that I hate the vitreous.
1: Oh, I thought that was totally just a pun. You know, I was worried that we've been having less and less puns as we've gone along,
0: but... I know, calls him pretty busy.
1: <laughs> oh, I know
0: was time to write like little puns in my notebook but uh, yeah well, but, but here we are
1: I don't, I don't know if it's something charming that we're missing or proof of uh, advancement but anyway
0: yeah no it's no sign of advancement but the vitreous causes a lot of issues it's not just for vitreoretinal specialists okay like anterior segment people unfortunately can run into the vitreous frequently <laughs> or infrequently right. If vitreous ends up
1: in one of my surgeries, it's usually not a
0: good thing. Right, and it's important to know the fundamentals of it, especially if you are a new resident. You will often get called about problems related in some way to the vitreous. In this episode, we're not going to go too far into pathology with the vitreous, but the point of this episode is to give you a framework to understand the vitreous. So when we do later episodes about things like vitreous detachments or vitreous inuresis or retinal tears, detachments, etc., you have this kind of fundamental understanding of what the heck it is and what it's doing so that you can understand why it is causing all these problems.
1: And so we'll start from the ground up, starting with its composition and then later talking about... How it sort of relates to the overall anatomy of the eye and its space in it, right, Ben?
0: Right. You know, during this episode, we're going to be talking about some things that are pretty fundamental, and ultimately, this is still supposed to be helpful for your border view. But we want to make this useful as well, not only to junior residents, but senior residents or or people who just graduated who may want kind of more finer nuance to the um, to what they're learning about. So we'll try to signal that throughout the episode, like what is really board relevant for all residents to know and then what might be a little bit of a, a higher level beyond the boards kind of thing that might be helpful to know when you're seeing patients with some kind of vitreous problem. Hmm. So what is vitreous made of? Andrew, what is it? the majority of the vitreous made of?
1: It's pretty much water, collagen, And hyaluronic acid.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The majority of the vitreous is water, of course, but it's the extra mixtures within it, the collagen fibers mainly, and then the hyaluronic acid that are helpful too. The collagen fibers are, you know, so it's it's a bunch of fibers that are cross-linked kind of in in these these meshes. And what's important is that those fibers stay cross-linked and kind of separated. You know, it's, Kind of looks I'm trying to think of something that has like a lot of like cross linked fibers that stay apart, like almost like a sponge.
1: I'm imagining some weird like somebody with astigmatism looking at a chain link fence.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like a chain link fence, but like in 3D, sort of, you know, like it's not just like one plane, but like in 3D. But, you know, one thing that's important is that that chain link fence doesn't collapse on itself, right? Because this isn't just like metal, you know, it's like these fibers floating around in water. Um, And for it to remain optically clear, which is one of the purposes of the vitreous for it to remain clear, you don't want those fibers to be clumped together because then they'll become visually significant floaters. So two things help accomplish that to keep this thing kind of separated apart. One is hyaluronic acid. So hyaluronic acid works in part as a filler. So it, it turns, you know, like a water into more like a gel, like a jello kind of thing, like a really kind of thin jello. And that gel effect helps to keep these fibers separated. Another thing that does it is the types of collagen that are that the vitreous is made of. So the main type of collagen that the vitreous humor is made of is collagen type two, and that's also By the way, the type of collagen that is in cartilage. So that's why there's, in a later episode, we're going to talk about uh, a number of retinopathies. Stickler's disease is one of the more common one of those. And that's why in those diseases, the vitreous and the joints tend to be affected because the joint cartilage is made of a very similar or the same type of collagen as as in the vitreous. So that's like what you should remember for the boards is that collagen type 2 is um, the the main type of collagen in the vitreous It's about seventy five percent. Andrew, do you want to review for us just what the other four types of collagens are that we should know in general for the board purposes?
1: So there's just collagen types one through four that you really need to know about for test purposes. And type two, uh, it's mostly here in the vitreous, but type one, starting there, it's there's a lot of it in the cornea and the sclera and you can imagine, aside from the vitreous, that's what makes up most of the eye. So the mnemonic is, one, there's a ton of it, call uh, for cornea and sclera. Type 2 in the vitreous, vitreous is kind of gooey. The mnemonic is type uh, 2 in the goo. 3 is heal me, because it's involved in a lot of wound healing and scar formation. And 4 on the floor... Indicates that collagen four is involved in basement membranes.
0: Yeah, exactly. So one, there's a ton. Two in the goo. Three, heal me. Four in the floor. Remember that, then hopefully we'll get one or two questions right in your next OCAP.
1: Although there's another collagen aside from any of these that's also involved in the vitreous, right?
0: Right, collagen. So there's actually a couple different types of collagen, like you know. But the other one, if you want to kind of take it a step further, is collagen type nine is also present in the vitreous. You know, collagen type nine does a few things. It it does form part of the kind of the core fibers of the of the collagen fibers in the vitreous. But a big purpose of it is it helps to shield collagen type two from sticking to other collagen type two fibers. So, that's one of the things that helps it, along with the hyaluronic acid, helps the fibers stay separated so they don't collapse on itself and um, allow the, the vitreous to kind of liquefy from a gel to, to liquid. So, that's collagen type nine. I think I've seen one question on that at some point. So, oh, you know, wow. What's up? Yeah, I feel like I, I did at some point, but I don't want specify, specify where or when or anything.
1: But, Knowledge but yeah. Of it, two is the high yield thing. Knowledge of nine, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: nine is like not that high yield. yield. But you know, maybe not you, low
1: yield, just yield.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like less than average yield. Um, okay. And the reason I'm talking so much about the collagen binding to itself and kind of collapsing is that it's this collapse that leads to a posterior vitreous attachment, which is probably the most common vitreous, um, it, not only vitreous attachment, also vitreous senuresis, which is where you get. These big strands that are visible in the vitreous that might be symptomatic for a patient. Uh, these are, you know, probably the most common vitreous pathologies that you'll see as as a resident.
1: So, just to take a quick step back, what is all this making? What all this is making me think of is there's just a lot of problems that can pop up from this composition, right? Mm-hmm. If uh, if this is really just like a fancy invisible fence or scaffolding. Uh, that starts to collapse in on itself anyway and causes PVDs later. That seems to be a pain. And then you've reminded us in a note here, too, that this scaffolding is a great scaffolding for bacteria.
0: Exactly, so yeah.
1: If you were to introduce a germ into the eye, it's just going to love living in the vitreous, and that's why it's such a problem there.
0: Yeah, that's why endothelitis can be so catastrophic. There's also no blood supply in the vitreous to bring immune cells to help fight in the infections. So oh, if, yeah. if if you look at the vitreous, like you know, under like uh, microscopy or whatnot, it looks kind of suspiciously like like you know, blood agar gels. You know, you use to culture bacteria because it's just crosslinked things that give great areas for bacteria to grow on. So that's remember that that's a huge reason why you never like when you do your intravitreal injections to your residents, be super sure that you have that betadine on that you have a very sterile field when you're. Injecting because if you introduce bacteria, it's really hard to control these things. Right.
1: So, PVDs, vitritis, terrible endophthalmitis. Uh, and then in later episodes, we'll talk about con- contributions to making retinal tears all over the place, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, what good is the vitreous? Why don't we just get rid of it all the time? Do people suffer any effects, Ben, after you've taken out their vitreous for whatever reason?
0: Yeah, I mean, so right. So this is like a huge question, right? In like the late '60s and then like the the early '70s, I I think the thinking at that time was that people need their vitreous. You're born with it, and if you don't have it, then you know you'll die or something. But you know when Makimer did the first vitrectomy and showed that you know the eye doesn't really need the vitreous, I think it. um, You know that that really changed our thinking and how I explained to patients. Because, you know, one of the most common things that, like, I do as a retina fellow is remove vitreous using a vitrectomy, and it kind of freaks patients out. They're like, oh, you're taking out a whole part of, like, the majority of my eye is, like, the the vitreous gel, and you're taking it out. How I explain to patients is that the vitreous gel is, uh, or the vitreous uh, body is what the rest of the optic cup forms around embryologically, so I kind of how I explain it to patients is it's it, it was the scaffold for which the rest of the eye formed, and then after you're kind of born, it doesn't serve that much of a purpose. It does serve two purposes. One is to give you an optically clear media to look through. What you know, BSS can do that too. Another thing that it does it does in fact help with is helps to slow down the rate of cataract progression. Why is that? Well, the most A common type of cataract in general is a nucleosclerotic sclerotic cataract. And like this is, you know, we will probably do like a lens pathophysiology episode at some point, but broadly speaking, nucleosclerotic sclerotic cataracts occur because of oxidation, like over time. So that's why it takes many years for that to develop. The vitreous provides somewhat of a barrier between the um, the, the high blood flow retina and choroid, to the lens, so it provides not only that barrier effect by being a gel that can kind of prevent the high oxygen tension brought by the retinal choroidal blood vessels from diffusing across and getting to the lens. But there's also a reasonable concentration of ascorbic acid within the vitreous, and some people hypothesize that gives an antioxidant effect. So as a result, after vitrectomy, like kind of the one thing I tell almost all patients to expect. Is you expect to get a cataract usually within a year? About ninety percent will get a cataract within a year. Now, there's some nuance to that in terms of how to prevent it. This has truly happened in younger patients? Which if you've ever heard a lecture by Steve Charles, and you will um, know that there are, are differing opinions on that. But um, but that is at least one thing it does is helps can provide an oxidative barrier to the lens. Yeah,
1: and that's you know whether or not your retina surgeon touches the back of the lens with their protractor.
0: Which we never do, of course, especially the fellows.
1: Right, right, right. Never, <laughs> <happens>. <laughs> it
0: never has happened, ever.
1: But the point that I'm making is that the increased cataract formation effect happens even if that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So there's a presumption that there's an antioxidant effect from the vitreous that's beneficial. And that right. is also sort of a hand-wavy idea that that might explain why some Increased rates of glaucomas happen after vitrectomy too. Oh, interesting. Uh, That maybe this antioxidant effect is also helpful to keep the optic nerve healthy.
0: Right. So two
1: significant reasons why having your natural vitreous is a a good thing for your eye overall, but definitely in general, mostly our enemy in surgery especially.
0: Right, right. Like I never really consider these things when deciding whether a patient needs a vitrectomy or not. Um, except when someone is getting a vitrectomy just to remove their vitreous for visually significant floaters, you know, it's not risk-free sure to do a vitrectomy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But we 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 won't have to go into that. That's a whole that's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. A
1: whole controversy. Yes. Yeah. So that's a great primer Ben on the composition and the relevance of things in the vitreous. But as far as how vitreous fits in relation to its place inside the eye and like its relationship to other ocular structures, can you walk us through some of that? And first off, how even much volume does it comprise?
0: Right, yeah, it's the majority of the eye. So it's about 80% of the eye, which comes out to about 4 cc's, 4 to 5 cc's of volume. Obviously with a lot of variation depending on the size of your eye. I saw an 11 cc vitreous cavity the other day. Yeah, I know that
1: was. Staphyloma or something? That was a really big eye. Yeah. Long
0: yeah, was, eye, I imagine, right? Yeah, it was incredibly long. It was hard to get like our instruments all the way back. But anyways. Thanks. Yeah. That, so, well, four to five cc's is the number to remember. You know, we just described this kind of diffuse, homogenous, inner cross-linked collagen things. It sounds like there's not much that we know about. And that's sort of true, but there are places where the collagen um, does condense into kind of more sheets rather than this kind of diffuse chain link fence. And those are like really important areas to understand in terms of being a cataract surgeon or examining the vitreous, looking for tears, et cetera.
1: Hey, Ben, I just had a fun slash depressing idea. Okay. How about we do the rest of this anatomy introduction from the point of view of a hapless cataract surgeon Yeah. Who is not having a bad day and making his own introduction through each of these parts of the vitreous from Absolutely. anterior to posterior. Let's do it. All right. So let's say I'm an unlucky cataract surgeon one day and I've just broken bag. And my phaco tip is having a little field trip through places it shouldn't go. Uh, I promise, it's not me, really. <laughs> but... What's the first thing that my like no whole expression is uh, dismay dismayed to see that I'm about to pierce first? All right. <laughs> What's the most anterior part of the vitreous?
0: So, so just in case you're uh, a junior resident who hasn't thought too much about facos yet, uh, okay. they, you know you have the the lens, and then there's a posterior capsule, and that's the biggest thing you don't want to disrupt during during cataract surgery, it's like the back part of the lens, and if you do, then you have suddenly been introduced to the anterior hyloid, where the hyloid is where the collagen is condensed. Like, it's not just this diffused stuff, but it's purposely condensed into a sheet. And that hyloid basically is continuous all the way around. It's like a, it's like the wall of a, of a gel sac. So there, the anterior hyloid is um, supposed to be stuck to the back of the lens capsule, which has just been disrupted. Another term for this part of the hyloid is the ligament of Weiger. Weiger? Weiger? W-I-E-G-E-R. And that, in theory, if you broke your lens capsule, then you may not have disrupted this part of the hyloid. Um, You know, that could still be intact, which can kind of hopefully prevent lens pieces and everything from falling back and prevent the vitreous from coming forward. So when you've broken the lens capsule, your main job is to try to keep this anterior hyloid intact and not disrupt it, because otherwise you'll get a gush of vitreous that will come into the anterior chamber, which is not good.
1: good And I've heard of this something called burger space that I think I, in my head, associate with the one possibility, possible chance, that even by breaking bag, I might not have unleashed the horrors of the vitreous just yet. Uh, can you tell me how Burger space is related to this ligament of Uyghur?
0: Yeah. So, so Burger space is a potential space that's between the lens capsule and this ligament of Uyghur, the anterior hyloid. So, it normally has something in it because normally the anterior hyloid is kind of stuck to that. Well, not stuck, but opposed to that lens capsule. But, you know, sometimes you get a little bit lucky and Burger space kind of expands a bit. And then that gives you a little bit of a buffer between the posterior capsule. In the ligament of Uyghur. It's also relevant in um, other situations when other elements can access that burger space. So, one example is when you um, inject gas into someone's eye to do something like, like, you know, like a pneumatic retinopexy, which obviously we won't talk about now, but that gas can end up in that space. It can be kind of frustrating because it can kind of get stuck in that space. So, like, you know, you have to have patients sometimes like tap their feet to get it to kind of slide back into the vitreous cavity or like. Yeah, they, we've actually had, they had patients like jump up and down <laughs> after one of these procedures. Amazing. You get the thing out of burger space, that potential space between the lens and the hyloid, to slide back into the vitreous cavity, which is where we want it.
1: <laughs> Real advanced man, maneuver right
0: there. Exactly. There, there's awesome. actually some people who will like start to tap in their patient on the head until the thing oh, starts to roll back. Yeah, yeah. so that's burger space. Okay. So it's, it's a potential space that so normally doesn't have anything in it. I see, so...
1: Guess I guess my phaco tip in this made up, definitely made up situation. Yeah, has never happened before. Yes, it never happened to me before. But now in this made up situation, my phacotip tip has busted open the back of the capsule. It's pierced through the ligament of Uyghur. I was unlucky and burger space did not expand to kind of be my invisible protective area. So now I'm in the anterior vitreous.
0: Right. So now uh, yeah, we're worried. The
1: next zone.
0: Yeah. So so now we're worried because the vitreous has now entered the anterior chamber, most likely. And w- why is that relevant? Well, the next kind of area that's, if we're going just posterior to this ligament of Uyghur, is the vitreous base. And this is like, the most important area to know about, I think, as like a, a retina person, you know, as a resident, you should really understand what this is. So, if you if you think about the eye, so like ignore the um ignore the the vitreous for now. If you think about the eye, so you have the lens, and then if you kind of go out to the zonules, and then posterior to the zonules, you have the pars placata, and then the pars plana. So that's the ciliary body that's just posterior to the you know to the lens on the, kind of the the sclera on the wall of the eye and then just posterior to the pars plana is the aura serrata so how the vitreous interacts with this area this very anterior part of the retina is it forms a ring around the whole aura serrata so it's like a ring that's like parallel to the cornea, you know, but it's just posterior. It's like posterior to the, to the limbus. It's a ring around. We call that area the vitreous base. So that vitreous base, it straddles the aura serrata. So it goes two millimeters anterior to the aura. So some of it is in the pars plana, And then one to four millimeters posterior to the aura serrata. You know, you can just memorize four millimeters back from the edge of the retina. And here... Think of it is essentially impossible to separate from the retina. Uh, it is so firmly attached that the retina will essentially always tear before the, the vitreous separates from the retina here. So just consider them completely glued, like they're stapled together in this area. Now, what's important to know about that is when you go anteriorly from this like kind of dense ring of vitreous, the fibers run parallel to the lens. So as that vitreous is coming forward, because of our unfortunate phaco tip, it's pulling directly on the vitreous base. And the vitreous base is where the retina is weakest and the vitreous connection is strongest. And that's why tears are so common when you violate the posterior capsule, unfortunately.
1: It's the kind of sneaky thing too, because like, at first I'm thinking, oh gosh, I'm going to be causing all these retinal tears and I'll see it as soon as I look in. But unless you're really good at scleral depression, you probably won't notice. Yeah, They're exactly. so close. They're like past the equator, more on the anterior side.
0: Yep, and that's where most tears in general will happen because, well, again, we're going to do a whole another episode on posterior vitreous attachments, but the vitreous will never detach in this area, so the most pulling attraction is going to be right at the edge of the vitreous base. So tears most commonly happen at the edge of the vitreous base, which is why it's important to understand the anatomy of it. Okay, so that's the the doom and the gloom.
1: And let's stop my little uh, nightmare scenario right there. Oh, we don't we have go to go any st- further deep.
0: <laughs> well, well, no. Now we have we can have lens pieces falling into the back. Oh no, <laughs> that's falling into the back. So now we can see what the posterior hyloid does. So when you go Great. posterior to that vitreous space, which you can ends about four millimeters from the border of where the retina starts, then. We have this. You, you have a hyloid. Again, the edge of the vitreous isn't just like this diffuse gel. It has kind of a membrane, which is where the collagen fiber is collected into a sheet. That's attached to the retina. It's stuck to the retina when we're all born. And what's important to know here is where the vitreous is most firmly attached to the retina. And the places it's most firmly attached are the vessels, the nerve, and the fovea. And what's common between all these things, like how you can kind of remember why is it firmly attached to those areas, is that's where the ILM is either non-existent or very thin. So to remind everyone, the ILM is the internal limiting membrane, which is the most superficial, the most surface level part of the retina. So so the vitreous does not bind really strongly to the ILM. It's relatively easy for it to separate from there. But if there's not much ILM, such as at the nerve where the ILM stops, or the fovear vessels where there's very thin or, or sometimes almost no ILM, then the vitreous can incarcerate more with the tissue and bind more strongly to the tissue. So that'll become relevant later when we talk about why you can have a hemorrhage with a vitreous detachment because it, the, the gel can bind strongly to vessels where there's not much ILM and tear those vessels as it, as it separates. The last two things to know about are where the vitreous tends to be most weakly attached, and that's right around the fovea. So when the vitreous starts to peel off, it'll peel off right around the fovea, um, which again is relevant to a lot of vitreoretinal interface diseases. And then the last thing, which is where I think our lens pieces will have kind of settled after they've fallen into the back, is there's a space above the macula called the premacular bursa? Uh, it's kind of like this pocket where there's not much like collagen fibers. That's like right above the macula. It, you can see it often on OCT. When you do OCT on patients who have a uh, who have a uh, their vitreous is still attached to the back of the eye, you'll often see this kind of like lens shaped pocket right in front of the macula. There's a couple of reasons why it can be helpful to understand this. The big one is. If it's hard to tell if the vitreous is still attached to the back of the eye, which can be relevant if you're trying to decide like, you know, what kind of tear does this patient have? Is there a symptom from the vitreous peeling off, like their flashes or is it from something else? If you see that pocket, that almost certainly means that the hyoid is still attached, because sometimes you can't see the highlight on OCT. Another kind of esoteric reason this is valuable to know is that some vitreous opacities do get into that premacular burst and some don't. So the classic ones to know is that vitreous hemorrhage can penetrate and fill up that premacular bursa, but asteroid hyalosis, which is thought to be this benign kind of congenital reason why people can get vitreous opacities, typically does not go into the premacular bursa. So if you see someone with these like floating vitreous, yellow vitreous capacities, you can't tell if it's old vitreous hemorrhage or asteroid hyalosis, you can try to look at the premacular bursa to see whether it's invaded that area or not. And that's our journey through the vitreous. <laughs> uh, we talked about a lot. I don't. Know, what do you think, Andrew?
1: <laughs> Sorry, I, like yeah, I rather went off good. on a no, no, on a tear. It's your area of expertise, so I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, your own journeys, your own surgical journeys, will not make the same pathway. Yeah, it's helpful to know what's what exactly is back there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Knowing just where things are attached and everything will be very helpful understanding why things go wrong and why I hate the vitreous so much why we all hate the vitreous so much I can't think of who would like the vitreous
1: stay tuned I guess to the next couple episodes that are going to take this concept and go from there towards uh, DVDs and rental tears
0: yeah if you liked what you heard you can follow us on twitter at eyes4ears with the number 4
1: we've got a website eyes4ears.com with the number 4 If you're a new resident, there's a page there that kind of accumulates all the good beginner topics, including tips for being on call, as well as kind of all the diseases and problems that you'd see most commonly.
0: And if you'd like to support the podcast, a rating review on iTunes where you found us is really helpful. And we'll hope to see you next time. Bye, guys.
1: See ya.